VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome. Am I? Are we recording? Yeah, we're goddamn recording. Nice. Yes, yes, we absolutely are. Welcome to No Dogs in Space Extra Play Edition. Yes, part two. <laughs> we were actually going at it for like fifteen minutes, and then yeah. we forgot that we uh, to uh, press record on my end. So, hey, you know what? You're going to get a more rehearsed edition from the beginning, at least. Also, darling, I appreciate you saying we when it was entirely my fault. That's Marcus Parks over there. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. Welcome to Extra Play. Welcome. Now, this edition of Extra Play is going to be a little different from the previous two that we've recorded. The previous two that we recorded, uh, we started off with some news, you know, what's going on in the music scene. (laughs) And then we moved on to a bit of a uh, prepared segment, you know, something that's a bit of a feature. This episode, though, this is going to be a different type of Extra Play, one that we hope we're going to get to do again and again as we keep putting out those full-length series for you. Uh, This is going to be a story that we wanted to tell in our replacement series, but just couldn't fit in for time because yeah, we didn't want to do five episodes. I know. it was. Oh, we did five episodes. Oh, shit, we did. Oh, we, well, oh damn it. You had me say it all. <laughs> now we have a sound bite. No, oh, okay. I'm sorry. We did four episodes and then we did a 4.5 episode, which was almost two hours long. <laughs> so, so, yes, we did do five episodes of The Replacements and due to pacing and stuff, of course, we have to leave some stuff out. Of course. So, even though our replacement series was, excuse me, four point five parts. <laughs> I, had, I was going to say five parts, but it's four point five parts. There were certainly some chapters of their story that we had to skip entirely, which is why we so vociferously recommended Bob Mayer's Trouble Boys. If you want to hear the whole story, please pick up that book. It's a fantastic book. It really is. It's just like with uh, the Iggy Pop biography, Open Up and Bleed, mm-hmm. where we just covered the Stooges, you know, and a little bit into Iggy's biography, Host Stooges. But there was still there's so much to cover. Like there's the entirety of the 80s, uh, which if you are an Iggy Pop fan, Open Up and Bleed is fucking great. Yes, that's uh, Paul Trinka. Mm hmm. But the one tale that we had to leave behind that I certainly didn't want to is what happened with the replacements when they made their first attempt at recording their second to last album, Don't Tell a Soul, at Bearsville Studios in upstate New York. Yes. You see, the original title for Don't Tell a Soul was Dead Man's Pop, which, you know, because at that time in their careers, uh, Paul Westerberg, the lead singer and principal songwriter, he was a big fan of pop music. And the rest of the band were, too. They're like, yeah, we like catchy tunes. Like, we want to write real pop 
music too. But in that era, if you wanted to write pop music, you were dead. You were making dead man's pop. But I don't understand that. If you're writing pop music, you were dead? Yes, you're making dead man's pop. But why is it dead... Be- because no one wanted that because it was all Bon Jovi all the time. Oh, so he well, was Bon saying, Jovi's a little pop. Yeah, oh, Bon Jovi's insanely pop. It was all of their biggest songs were written by the same dude who wrote Lady Marmalade, Desmond Child. Well, what do I know? I'm just co-host <laughs> of No Dogs in Space. But anyway, the point is, is that that's what they they originally wanted a title. Yeah. I, I know they had another working title. Uh, supposedly it was uh, Festicle. Festicle. Yes, yes. It's a portmanteau uh-huh. of uh, two words, uh, testicle and festival. And ah. they thought it would be like those two. Let's just put them together. Yeah. Let's just scrunch them in together. Yeah. And that was their working title. Testicle festival is a fun thing to say. So don't tell a soul. <laughs> That's the one that they ended up going with that was released in February 1989. I mean, I understand trying to use Dead Man's Pop. And I understand the sentiment there because one of the two producers that they worked with on this album uh, said that his job as producer was to finally bring the replacements into the 1980s. And he said that in 1989. Right. That was weird, right? (laughs) Way too late. And of course, they were brought into the 80s, but due to the mixing by Chris Lord Algae that we talked about in our series, he fucking buried them in 1989. Yeah, it's it's a shame. Yeah, definitely check out the series if you haven't. Otherwise, you might not understand what's going on. (laughs) But either way, just come along for the ride. Please do. Now, when the replacements were getting ready to go into the studio for their next album after the Jim Dickinson-produced classic Please to Meet Me, the band was emotionally and physically spent after a particularly raucous tour, which means a lot for the replacements. To give you a sense of how senseless the replacements got on the Please to Meet Me tour, and this isn't even like a crazy, wacky, like drug-fueled story or anything. This is just how fucking stupid they were. They and their openers, the Young Fresh Fellows, had, for reasons still entirely unclear, Shave their eyebrows one night. <laughs> All of them just fucking shave their eyebrows. You've never done that? No. Have you? No, actually, no. But but I'm, yeah. I'm still saying it in a very, that's what you do. You say it in a judgy way. Like, what? Like, you've never done that? Come on. I don't know. I did. I took it in a way that you expected me with my past who have at one point shaved my <laughs> eyebrows. Like, that seems like some dumb shit you would have done when you were 22. No, no. I don't think you would have done that. But you know what? There are people who do that kind of crap. Yeah. Just for the hell of it. Just because. Even if it lasts months. The consequences <laughs> last months. The consequences of the replacements doing it is that they had to do an interview on MTV with no eyebrows just a few days after they did it, they look like a bunch of fucking mental patients. That's great. (laughs) That's the only time I would do that. Right before an interview with MTV. (laughs) Well, I think they forgot they had an interview with MTV three days later. They weren't big on scheduling. In the interview, they tried to explain that they shaved their eyebrows as a prank. Basically removing their eyebrows so they could get their openers to shave their eyebrows. But in the end, the replacements still had to deal with having no eyebrows and they still had to go on MTV with no eyebrows. In other words, it was the replacements in a fucking nutshell. There you go. Yeah. I love it. But you know what? It worked. (laughs) I mean, it is a story. You can't say it didn't work. (laughs) Now, when it came to who was going to produce the next album after Please to Meet Me, the band briefly considered using Jim Dickinson again, the producer who injected an entirely new sound into the mats in Memphis. Mm. But the band, who were always reluctant to use the same producer twice, they said that Dickinson knew them too well. And Dickinson said that they learned just enough about producing from him where they could use that knowledge to abuse future producers. (laughs) That seems nefarious. (laughs) 
But you know what? It's not completely wrong just no. because they're young kids. They're just, they're nuts. Yeah. I mean, they're not even kids. These are adults. These are men. Yes, these, right? are, these are men in their mid to late 20s at this point. Yes, these are actually 10 years older than people who like liberated Birkenau, you know? <laughs> but these are still kids in many ways. Yes. They're still children. Now, eventually, the Matts settled on a young producer named Tony Berg, who at that point had barely worked on anything behind the knobs. And he'd gotten the job. Well, heck, the one thing, he had worked on the new monkeys yes. at that point. Yeah, yes, the new monkeys. Were the, <laughs> it said new. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah. And he'd gotten the job after having one of those infamous drunken replacements bar interviews. Basically how the replacements hired anyone. It, well, actually, I looked it up. It wasn't at a bar. It was in a conference meeting at 11 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> but they oh. had beer there. Oh, I, shall, I thought this was a CC club thing. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, after Berg made his pitch for producing the next Matt's album, Paul Westerberg grabbed Berg's leg, pulled off his boot, and poured a beer inside. He then chugged the beer from Berg's boot, slammed it on the table, and said... You're our man. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. This guy's made of legends. <laughs> and so after finding a hole in Berg's schedule, the band scheduled 10 days at Bearsville Studio near Woodstock in upstate New York to see if the Mats could bang out an album in less than two weeks. Now, by 1988, the year Don't Tell a Soul was recorded, Bearsville Studio had already been host to some of the legends of rock music. Built by Bob Dylan's manager, Albert Grossman, in 1969, Bearsville had already been the birthplace of Runt, Todd Rundgren's first album, mm. Bat Outta Hell by Meatloaf, and Patti Smith's last album of the 70s, Wave. Yeah, you're going to hear about that soon. Very soon. After Don't Tell a Soul, though, Bearsville took on a very specific vibe. And when I say after Don't Tell a Soul, I mean like 90s. It took on a very specific vibe following the recording of Jeff Buckley's Grace. I love that. I love it so much. I know I know it's not for you, but it's for me. Yeah, I know. It I, just speaks to me. I, I, <laughs> I have to hear it twice in a row, every time. Uh, yeah, the entire album? Yes. All right, all right. That's uh, that. It is interesting. It is interesting. The yeah. type of people that I've known throughout my life that are really into Jeff Buckley's Grace. I, I'm not like really into it, but when I play it, I have to play it twice in a row. I understand that. I get it. I, get I like it. it. I like it. I, I, I'm not detecting any judgment. <laughs> What? Like you've never shaved your eyebrows? <laughs> I wasn't. I, I, well, I guess that you felt the same thing where we both felt like each of us was judging each other at 22. It's fine. <laughs> it's totally fine. And by the way, I was 30. <laughs> so it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> well, Jeff Buckley's Grace was followed by the two biggest albums from Dave Matthews Band and Fish respectively. All right, yeah. Okay, I could see that there's it's it's kind of a very much of a camper kind of setting. <laughs> I could see I could see how that's that's kind of cool. I could see some circles, some yeah. drum circles there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There was some real deep conversations held out in those woods, man. I love it. But the thing about Bearsville is that this was not like recording in Memphis or even Minneapolis. Bearsville is far from any city. The closest city is, of course, New York City, and it takes fucking forever to get there from here. And Warner Brothers thought that this would enable the Mats to get in and out with a solid, focused record. <laughs> yeah, sure. That That's how it always starts. All of these <laughs> horror movies, that's how it always starts. Yeah. I just need two weeks just to get over my divorce. Yeah, I'm going to go and finish my novel. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's like two girls that are dead who are haunting you the whole time. Well, not surprisingly, the Mats gave them the absolute opposite. 
Now, as far as what went wrong, the biggest problem was that nobody involved knew how to actually handle the replacements. Because if there was any band in history that needed handling, it was the replacements. See, with each successive album, the band was getting more and more ornery, and their drinking sessions were getting darker and darker. Yeah, because these guys, particularly Paul, they were feeling a lot of pressure to make this record a successful record. Yeah. Like Paul, at this time, he's in his late 20s, like you said, like he's almost 30. And they've been around this band, The Replacements, for like about 10 years, yeah. right? Because they started in 1979, and right now it's 1988, so it's like nine, nine and a half years. And it's their seventh album. And I mean, if you count their EP stinks. Yeah, so yes, we, oh, we, we always count that. So it's their seventh album and it's their third major label release. Yeah. Right. So because remember the previous two, Tim and Please to Meet Me, they're fantastic records, they are. but never went gold. They didn't even come close to going gold. Absolutely not. I and, mean, they're, they've shot their shot. I mean, yes. there's, a, there's both of those albums are full of almost what you would think would be sure things, but just didn't quite hit it. That's the thing. The replacements, they were feeling that pinch, you know, or, or it seems like everyone, it's almost like everyone's counting on us to be the Minneapolis homegrown boys done good. Yeah. But it's scary because remember, Bob Stinson had already been replaced at this point. They have Slim Dunlap, you know, and they're also dealing with a lot of mental health problems and, and drug and alcohol addictions. And, and it's, it's just way too much for them. There's a lot to unpack. Yeah. But we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> going into this, remember Tommy Stinson, for example. He left school and joined the replacements when he was fucking 14 years old. No, he was like 15. He was 15. Okay. But still, I mean, it's not better. It's not but better. It's like, but it, it's 10 years later. Yes. You know, like it, it's 10 years later, and, and he has he, lived his entire life on the road as a replacement. I mean, Tom Waits said that's why he loved Tommy Stinson, but that also made Tommy Stinson real fucking weird. He never read the Canterbury Tales. <laughs> he did, never had like never a had regular, to. you know, childhood experience, a regular, like a teenage experience. Yeah. So it's it's a little intense. And it's starting to fuck with him. Yes. Real and, hard. And also everyone's like, oh, we kind of created a bit of a monster here. <laughs> yes, because we raised him ourselves, kind of. <laughs> he was raised by Paul Westerberg. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes him a fantastic musician and songwriter. Yeah. But also, you know, it, it took him a while to grow up. Yeah. As, as we said in the, in the replacement series, at the end like it took them a long time for them to get the mental help that they really needed yeah well from producer tony berg's perspective he said that producing don't tell a soul was like producing pirates a whole gang invading bearsville like cutthroats missing only a jolly roger waving to signify their arrival now one of the things that are most important during recording albums with bands like the replacements is the choice of babysitter <laughs> yes, that is something we've talked about quite a bit. Some some idiot gets that job. That poor poor person who is probably totally way overqualified and yes. undervalued yeah. has to do that job. Yeah. For example, Lee Black Childers. Is it Childers or Childers? Have we ever fucking landed on that? No, I've always said Childers. Yeah, I've always but said, I've Childers said it confidently. Well. Yeah, Lee Black Childers. He did a pretty solid job of keeping the Stooges alive when he was VP of David Bowie's management company, Main Man. And we know that's actually, that is no small feat. Yeah. And the Stooges had a pool. Yeah. <laughs> you had to a keep them from... Because <laughs> Iggy Pop was like, yeah, man, I, I, I can only write if I have a pool around. <laughs> and then he just slips underwater and the like, childers is like all in red with that little lifeguard red thing. And he has to jump in and just, oh, God, again. Remember, we talked about this. Yeah, we've talked about it. Go listen to our Stooges series for more about that. <laughs> but for Don't Tell a Soul, the replacements management team, High Noon, they sent an 
intern named Tim Perel to drive the replacements upstate, dole out their per diems, and to call high noon bosses Gary and Russ with daily status reports. Perel later said that on the drive up from New York City, they got stuck in traffic on the Long Island Expressway, and since the band had been drinking from the moment they left, they all just started pissing in the van. Then, when Perel told them he'd just graduated college, they spent the next few days calling him Einstein. Fucking Einstein. Hey, Einstein. Fucking out of beer, Einstein. Where's my fucking money today, Einstein? That's the problem with being drunk. You don't get super original. (laughs) From some of the best songwriting ever. Uh, They're just like, what are you, some kind of... Give me some... Einstein! (laughs) Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. And with groups like The Replacements... Once they've given you a nickname, you've lost their respect. It's over. You've lost your pants. I promise you. <laughs> now, for the first few days at Bearsville, Berg managed to keep the replacements on track, or he at least did the best that he could. But it soon became clear that Berg did not understand the dynamic of the replacements at all, or he understood it nowhere near as well as Jim Dickinson had. Because remember, Jim Dickinson, his whole thing was he pulled the strings. (laughs) Like, you know, he knew how to play these guys. Yeah. You know, he knew how to play them, not even necessarily against each other. He knew how to put all these guys together. He knew that Tommy needed a little bit more attention. Like, he knew that Paul Westerberg, like, you kind of close him up. You just treat Paul like a special little guy. Well, I think a big part of it had to do with Jim Dickinson already being kind of a maniac. Yeah. And also working with other creative and very eccentric, I guess you could say, people like like Alex Chilton. So by Mm -hmm. the time he gets to be like a little bit older, kind of like an older kind of uncle or a cool older brother thing, he's just like, I know exactly where you are. Yeah. He's already dealt with the Rolling Stones. Right. He knows how to deal with the fucking replacements. But Paul Berg... He's dealt with the new monkeys. Yeah, I mean, he, he's a younger guy. He's a little green. He does admit this in interviews. He's just like, this is like my first like big thing that I'm really doing that I was, you know, he was doing another thing with Charlie Sexton and then, you know, Charlie Sexton had to take a break or something. Mm-hmm. So he was, this is the first thing that he was going to like helm himself, yeah. like it produce and like a, a big major label record and everything. Yeah. Well, as far as understanding the dynamics of the replacements went, Paul Westerberg was starting to write more Paul Westerberg songs than replacement songs by this point. And Tommy Stinson. Ostensibly, the heart of the band was being sidelined by Berg in favor of Paul's vision. Because he figures Paul is the songwriter. He's writing the songs, so let's just have Paul write the songs. I don't got to <laughs> fucking worry about nobody else. Just fucking bring Chris in. He'll put drum down, slim down that. And then that'll be fine. We'll do it in two weeks and it's fucking done. 
By the way, this guy is one of the most successful music industry execs <laughs> today. But that's exactly how it started. Yeah. Well, furthermore, this was the Matt's first time in the studio with new guitarist, the aforementioned Slim Dunlap, who had, of course, replaced Tommy's brother Bob Stinson as guitarist after the recording of Please to Meet Me. Because remember, they recorded Please to Meet Me as the three-piece. Lastly, drummer Chris Mars, he was barely there. He pretty much relegated drumming to second place behind his art, which is what he wanted to do all along. And by the way, his art is actually like drawing and painting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know we use that loosely sometimes. Yeah, but, we do. But he, does, he has amazing art. Okay, I can't even just Google it now. Chris Mars art. Please do. Buy some of his prints. They're fantastic. Yes. In other words, there was a lot of tension and weirdness, and Tony Berg didn't have a handle on any of it. In addition to all that, the substance abuse of the replacements was reaching new levels. After driving a car into a tree, Slim Dunlap said that he needed to go get his back checked out. And after stopping in at the office of a country doctor, Dunlap came out with a large bottle of muscle relaxants, <laughs> which were passed around to the band and mixed with copious amounts of liquor over the next two weeks. All right, take note. <laughs> Step one. Just ram into a tree. <laughs> Step two, go to a doctor in rural New York. Step three, get medication that you would normally prescribe horses and bears. <laughs> Enjoy. I mean, I do wonder whether it was a full plan or if Slim Dunlap just took the opportunity. Like, Honestly, I, I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> we don't know. But probably it was probably just one thing led to another. I'm sure. Well, as such, the replacement's behavior with all the pills and the booze, it wasn't quite top-notch. And Tommy, for some reason, seemed to be settling into the worst of it. He spent quite a bit of time during the sessions playing five-finger fillet, seeing how fast he could stab a gigantic knife between his fingers as he splayed his hand out on the table. And Tony Berg said that he just sat there watching Tommy Stinson doing it, absolutely terrified. I don't like it when people do that either. You know, the thing where you put your hands out, or sometimes they put someone else his hand on there yeah and then they do the thing with the knife like an aliens yes yeah yes exactly i don't like it <laughs> like in real life i don't like it no it's no in real life it's deeply unsettling i, I don't know why this is not a party trick <laughs> I, I'd, I'd rather ram into a tree <laughs> well another night tommy stinson was in the back seat driving with tony berg when a bon jovi song came on the radio apparently tommy hated Bon Jovi and decided to show his displeasure by smashing the radio with a swift kick. But just as Tommy's foot slammed down on the AM-FM, Berg was reaching down to change the station, no. and Tommy crushed Berg's hand badly enough where Berg had to spend the rest of the session with his hand bandaged. Do we know that he hated Bon Jovi? That, uh, do we know that Tommy Stinson hated Bon Jovi? Yes, let, let's put up the volume, actually. <laughs> no, because t that was the year where Bon Jovi had five top ten hits. Yeah. And I remember that. I've been singing this song all afternoon. I'll be there for you. <laughs> if you want me to. Oh, wait. I'll I'm, be oh, there shit. for you. Oh, shit. I, I got the song I'll wrong. I'll be there for you. Yes, that, that's. If you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> I will the I'll be there for you. Never serenade me. <laughs> or actually, Whoa. please, please do. Living actually, on do a it. prayer air. That was another one. Shot down <laughs> in a blaze of glory. That was another one. Uh <laughs> Weird. I was like, we're actually going in a different direction. <laughs> well, this is, of course, you know, Tommy Stinson's. Hatred of Bon Jovi is oddly coincidental, considering how the eventual mix of Don't Tell a Soul would, in fact, sound a lot like a Bon Jovi record. Mm. 
Another night, the band held Tony Berg's arms and force-fed him muscle relaxants, then got the near-teetotaling producer extraordinarily intoxicated with Singapore slings, which, knowing the replacements, was probably just gin with a splash of a couple other things. Yeah, now we're treading into illegal stuff now. It's, now now this is completely horror. This is wrong. This is abuse. Okay, like, thank this you. This is absolute abuse. Yeah, I mean, it's like what I said about Jim Dickinson is they knew just enough to abuse the next producer, but this actually isn't even abusing a producer. This is just abusing a man. <laughs> <laughs> and, Come on, children. <laughs> by the way, a half-gallon gin bottle was also thrown through a studio window by Tommy Stinson after he was asked to make his bass part on Asking Me Live Funkier, which was followed by Paul lighting the remnants of a guitar Slim Dunlap destroyed on fire on the studio floor. They're in bad behavior mode. The worst behavior of their whole fucking career. Yes, and this is not a total excuse or anything, but they're in the throes of addiction. Yes, they are. Yes. As far as the living quarters went, the mats destroyed the little cabin set aside for recording artists. It's the weirdest thing. They just spread cream cheese all over the nice pine walls, and they used the knives in each kitchenette to play dodge knife, which was dodgeball, with knives. Mm. We briefly mentioned it in the series. That was the only thing we mentioned about this entire fucking session (laughs) in the series was dodge knife. But but, you would be good at that game. Like anyone would have would like fucking go out of their adrenaline rush. Yeah, would make me an amazing sprinter. Yeah. I'd be great at dodge knife. (laughs) Prove it. (laughs) Later. (laughs) Well, the climax of the entire session came when Tommy and Paul were playing a game of I Dare Ya. And Tommy dared Paul to walk across the studio's $250,000 console that had been custom built for The Who. Holding a bottle of Jack in his hand, Paul nimbly tiptoed around the faders and knobs, at which point Berg finally lost his fucking mind after just a week of dealing with the replacements. Berg and Paul started screaming at each other, and when they both tried to leave the studio in different directions, they just ended up following each other down the hall. Of course, both doors led to one hall. (laughs) The screaming and yelling and eventual crying continued all the way down to the studio's canteen, where members of Metallica were eating Chinese takeout as quietly as they could. And of course, this was the mixing session that we talked about. In the last extra play. And Justice for All is when they were mixing. Yes. Mm -hmm. And apparently James Hetfield peering out from his Mushu chicken (laughs) was like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) And and then they were all like Lars and everyone was like, just be quiet. Maybe if we don't move, they won't recognize us or acknowledge us in any way. And then just keep crying over there in the other room. (laughs) And they did. They actually did. did. That's what you have to do. It's like a (laughs) T-Rex. Just don't move. (laughs) Well, years later, Tommy Stinson, I don't know if I told this anecdote in the Metallica episode, but years later, Tommy Stinson would run into Metallica lead singer James Hetfield at, of all places, a strip club in Hollywood. Stinson said that Hetfield hide him for a while and asked him if he was in the replacements and if he was in Bearsville. And when Stinson said yes, Hetfield said, you guys were fucking nuts. You scared us. <laughs> I love that. I love that's Metallica, man. That's Metallica. That is Metallica. Like, man, they've made some great albums, yeah, right? But you can scare them. You can scare them <laughs> oh, if you really try. They're very skittish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but back to the night in question. 
Berg was worried that the mats were going to do something terrible to the tapes they'd spent a week recording. Because remember, they've been trying to record an album this entire time. I forgot. <laughs> I honestly forgot what we were here for. Yeah, they've been trying to, like, these are guys that are three albums into a major label deal. This is the one where they're thinking, we're going to make our hit. Instead, they've spent a week driving cars into trees, fucking drinking Singapore slings, throwing knives at each other, screaming at each other. They're scared. They are fucking terrified. Now, if you'll remember, there was a story going around at this time that the Mats had broken into their first label, Twin Tone, stolen the master tapes from their first few albums, and thrown them in the river. Now, we know that they didn't actually find the master tapes, and they threw something else entirely. Into yes, the river. but it's not like a codfish or anything. <laughs> like, there were tapes. Uh, there were tapes, I think they were like extra safeties or something like that. It, w- it was not of much consequence, I believe. Well, it was something that cost the mats more money because <laughs> it was the, it was. I think it was the safeties for the new cassette re-releases That's of the right. first few mats albums. So the mats actually had to pay to get more of those made. <laughs> so they, again, just shot themselves in the fucking foot. But Paul Westerberg... He told Tony Berg during that initial interview that they had thrown the master tapes into the drink. He was into the drink. Yeah, into the drink. Oh, okay, yeah. gotcha. Yeah, that he had thrown the master tapes into the fucking river. You know, and <laughs> sorry, I don't know what a drink is. Yeah. <laughs> into the drink. It's I don't know why I'm. It's a I don't know. I don't know why I wrote. Can you that teach like me a, English? <laughs> no, and that's not English. That's like noir slang. I don't know why I put it that way. <laughs> is that like a Texan thing, or is that a regular thing? In the drink. I don't know. I think it's like a yeah. We yeah. We found his body. We pulled it out of the drink. See, like no, it's I don't know. If if you're from Dick Tracy Land, <laughs> no dogs in space at gmail.com. Tell me where that comes from. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. But anyway, Paul Berg fully believed that they had thrown away masters to four masterpieces, (laughs) like four fantastic albums. He thought that they just thrown it away. So Berg took the tapes from the Bearsville sessions and hid them, which infuriated the Mets (laughs) because they were planning on destroying the tapes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But remember, a lot of these were like just very advanced demos. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 They didn't really do anything like for the album album quite yet. Yeah. And and there was one classic song recorded in the session. We'll get to that later. Mm -hmm. But finally, Tony Berg managed to placate the Mets just enough. And the last few of the 10 days went by without incident, but also without an album. As Paul Westerberg put it, the Mats, quote, went up there, hit a fucking tree, threw knives at each other, walked across the board, smashed up some shit, and scared Metallica. That's all they accomplished. Yes! Yes! I know! Isn't that great? We got a lot done! Oh, the album. Oh. But with that, they felt like they were done with the fucking woods. That's right. They're done with the fucking woods. Yeah. You know, that's the nuttiest thing about a Bearsville right next to Woodstock. Jimi Hendrix once had a vision of getting musicians from all over the world to go to Woodstock. Right there. Right there. They would would all sit in a circle in the fucking woods and play their instruments nonstop. It could be for weeks or months or years. But after a while, everyone in the circle would create or, or rather would find a common language between them and be able to achieve this abstract universal language of music for all mankind, the language of peace. And Paul is done with the fucking woods. (laughs) 
Dodge and, knife. And dodge knife. That's what they did. You know, Jimi Hendrix would be like, so what is this dodge knife? <laughs> what can... Wait, wait. Explain it to me again. <laughs> How does this create a language of peace? <laughs> yeah. Hendrix wanted the, music, the fucking musical language and Tommy Stinson threw a gin bottle through a window. Yes. So you see, there's two kinds of musicians that we're going <laughs> to... That we're going to talk about. Yeah. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece with nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Now, absolutely nothing from the Bearsville sessions ended up on Don't Tell a Soul, and the actual album ended up getting recorded mostly in Hollywood with producer Matt Wallace. And Matt Wallace's mix would finally be featured on the Dead Man's Pop box set after they found the originals for these tapes in Slim Dunlap's basement. Because why would you throw them in a river if you could just put them in the basement? Why would you do that? But that box set also brought back some of the Bearsville sessions because they'd been collecting dust for almost 30 years. From that, we get a long-lost song that's now considered a replacement's classic, the apology track Portland, written as a sort of mea culpa for a particularly disastrous replacement show in the Pacific Northwest just before the Bearsville sessions. That means I'm sorry. <laughs> I learned Latin. Yeah. So that's Latin, right? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't oh, know. Yeah. Okay. No, no, you're in it. You're in it. Okay, so yes, the song Portland, it is about a gig that the replacements did a few months before the Bearsville recording sessions. And, and of course, this gig was so disastrous. I was actually able to find recent news articles <laughs> about that night from like the last like six years. Wow. And, and that was what? 35 years ago, the night of that show, the people of Portland have not forgotten. <laughs> no. So here it is. <laughs> Cue it up, Portland. This is it right here. This is this continues what the replacements eventually got with Aiken to Be. It's another fucking alt-country classic. Here it is. One, two, one. Share a cigarette for breakfast Share an airplane ride for lunch Sitting in between a ghost And a walking bowl of punch Then you play a little hush Predicting Italy I'm landing Well I predict we'll have a drink Lost my money on a first hand Got burned on a big fat king And your ears just won't ring And your eyes just won't close Nothing changes, I suppose It's too late to turn back Here we go Portland, 
So it is an apology, yes, for the city of Portland, Oregon. It's like, as Tony Berg has said while they were recording, it's kind of like a song that they didn't want to do. (laughs) Like it hurt them to apologize, but they knew that they were so wrong. Yeah. So they had to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's in the chorus. It's just Portland. Oh, no. Yes. So here we go. The incident in question. Yeah. December 7th, 1987 at the Pine Street Theater in Portland, Oregon. So, by the way, Portland, you guys are awesome. You're great. Yes, love love it. Revolution Hall, every time we play it like we play there, every time we do Portland, fucking love Portland so much. You got good biscuits. Yes. And gravy. Pine Street Theater is not there, but I think it's called La Luna or something like that. But anyway, so that was the place where the replacements and their opening band, Young Fresh Fellows, decided to throw a couch out the second floor window of their dressing room. The whole couch. Okay. And that's before the show began. <laughs> you can't really throw half the couch out the window. I know, but I'm, trying to, I'm doing this for emphasis. They threw a whole couch. I don't know if it was a love seat or a sectional or whatever. <laughs> it could have been, been deadly, yeah. is what I'm saying. And, and obviously, as we know, they were drunk since that afternoon. Yeah. And probably drunk since the night before. Like, they are like that cartoon guy, Archer. Yeah. Like, they're always like, I have to keep getting drunk, otherwise I will get a hangover and it will ultimately kill me. <laughs> yeah. So, so okay, so the, the replacements, they finally go on, they play their set, and they're trying to play their songs, but they're always stopping and starting. We talked about this before. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, they just abandon the song and be like, let's just do something else. And so they also barely did any Please to Meet Me songs. Yeah. Which is what, they were on tour for. Yeah, those are you the know, ones they knew the least. They had to promote that record, though. They had to yeah. do that. They forgot to play Alex Chilton, which was their single at the time. <laughs> so they did songs from Let It Be and yeah. Tim and, and a lot of covers. They did Rolling Stones to uh, Prince to Dusty Springfield. But not only that, but Scott, the lead singer of Young Fresh Fellows, who, you remember, has no eyebrows, yeah. he used to bring around and uh, wear this like costume-looking renaissance like velour cape. Some, some people call it a robe mm-hmm. at shows and stuff. Well, Paul is wearing it now mm-hmm. throughout this whole show. So Paul has that on, but underneath he has all of Scott's clothes as well. All of them, like the, the, the his, all his clothes for the tour. So during the show, so fucking Paul stupid. and Tommy are throwing Scott's clothes into the crowd, <laughs> and people were taking them, including that Renaissance Da Vinci cape thing that yeah. that Scott had. Scott never saw it again. No, it's, Scott wanted into the crowd. Hey guys, come on, uh, give him like, back. Come on. That's what happened when Tommy, <laughs> according to one newspaper article, Tommy did throw his pants and then realized he had money in there and he asked them to bring his pants back and then they gave him a $20 bill and he raised it up and everyone like in some sort of weird mutiny started cheering <laughs> about it. Like, yeah, this is, they are pirates. They, they are. are pirates. Okay. And so that's not even the worst of it. Okay. It's what happened backstage. Uh. You see, after the show, Paul thought it would be fun to jump and grab onto the crystal chandelier that was in their dressing room and rock back and forth on it like a Tarzan swing. Yes, well, I bet you can guess what happened next. Crashed the fucking floor. The whole thing, yes, came crashing down with Paul. He was fine, though. Uh, He he just dusted himself off and Mm -hmm. said, they always fall. (laughs) But man, it feels good for just that one split second. Yeah. 
And Not a, his first rodeo then. <laughs> first time. <laughs> and, and according to one news article, the two bands, the replacements and Young Fresh Fellows, they stole a couple of bowling balls from a nearby bowling alley <laughs> and they used them to play bowling backstage, like in the, in the hallways with empty beer cans. Did they just wander into a bowling alley? And I think you could do I, They don't have armed guards. <laughs> I think you could just do that if you tried. Yeah. And during all the fun, though, the drummer of Young Fresh Fellows, he fell on a broken jar of peanut butter <laughs> while they were trying to make a human pyramid, and he had to go get stitches, okay? And then, and then Pappy the Clown showed up. <laughs> all fucking hell broke loose! Of course, Pappy the Clown being Chris Mars's silent clown alter ego. He's very creepy, the, the kind of guy who's smiling with nothing behind his eyes, <laughs> and he's just trashed, and he doesn't even talk. That's the thing, he's a mime. Yeah, he's a mime, but an evil mime. So according to Paul, they didn't get paid that night. <laughs> so they did write that song to apologize to the city of Portland, and they recorded it with Tony Berg, who said it was like the most involved song that they did at Bearsville. You know, Tommy even asked to get like one of those upright classical bass things. Yeah. And, you know, they gave him like a really fancy rental, uh, like a German model, <laughs> which I don't know why. They, I mean, like, Bad it's ideas. like you're giving this to Tommy Simpson. And of course, he did destroy it. Yeah. That was $4,000. <sighs> And then in the song, there's also bongos. Tommy's like, get me some bongos. So, you know, it's in a country song, but it kind of all makes sense. It works. Yes. And then at the very end of the song, you do hear Paul finally. And and you know, it's like really pains him. He's like, I'm sorry, Portland. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it ends. And to quickly just explain how it ended with Tony Berg Mm -hmm. at Bearsville, you know, towards the end of it, they actually did have to go to uh, Minnesota. You see, the the replacements, they were asked to do a song for a Disney compilation album called Stay Awake. Various interpretations of music from vintage Disney films. So... This is something I've never heard of, but apparently it was pretty popular because Enemy ranked it 37 in their list of best albums of the year, 1988. <laughs> REM got number three, The Replacements, nothing. Wow. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, they didn't have an album come out in 1988, so that makes <laughs> okay, sense. that makes a lot of fucking sense. Yeah, yes. I know, I know. I'm just, I'm just an asshole. I just wanted to bring up REM again. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Slut Bank. Yeah. <laughs> Slapping, working title. They did play their cover of Cool Out DeVille live, and they did sing a version of it in Bearsville that had the lyrics, Cruella DeVille, I'll fuck you in the face, Cruella DeVille. So they had to redo it because Disney said, no, thank you. <laughs> We're not going to put fuck you in the face, Cruella DeVille, on a Disney <laughs> compilation. But on Dead Man's Pop, uh, one of the discs, disc three, was a show at the University of Wisconsin in which they played Cruella DeVille. Let's hear a little bit of it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. We're doing this on this fucking Disney record that we got. We got totally tricked into doing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, She doesn't scare you, no evil thing will To see her is to take a sudden chill Cruella, Cruella de Vil The ice in her look, the pain in her stare Oh, innocent children, you better beware The world was such an awesome place until Cruella Probably 
probably the best blues song they ever did. It's fantastic. It is in the Dead Man's Pop box set. You could also look it up on YouTube or Spotify or, or whatever you have. The Cruella de Vil that they actually cut in Minnesota is I actually think it's great. Yeah? It's a really, I like it. I like it a lot. And it's actually one of the stronger ones that they have in, because I listened to the Stay Away compilation. I had a lot of time on my hands today, <laughs> apparently. But we're still working really hard on Patty Smith. Of course. So, so the replacements, they did record the song Crayola DeVille, like I said, in Minneapolis. And they were hanging out at their regular bar, the CC Club. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're hanging out with Tony Berg, who produced them, of course. And Tony did notice, like, throughout that whole night at the CC Club, that they were being assholes to him. They yeah. did were being nasty to him like they were giving him the old the old brush off the yeah. old asshole brush off no, like i don't they, like you anymore that thing that they've done they like if we treat you badly enough uh maybe you'll leave velvet underground are also famous for that yep and so tony berg he spoke up like at that bar like at cc club and he said are you guys trying to sabotage this record what's going on and tommy stinson he turned to tony berg and said yes because you're too young to record us so tony just stood up from the bar and he left like, that was the last time he saw them again. Yeah. That that was it. And, you know, to be honest, like, Tony was 34 at the time, you know. And, and remember, Tommy Ramone, who produced Tim, was 36. <laughs> but remember, he was too old. He was an old man. So, I mean, it's not necessarily his youth, but I think they were kind of looking for someone else to uh, lean on, maybe, perhaps. They, they wanted another Jim Dickinson. That could have been it. They wanted dad. Yes. That's what they yearned. That's what they craved. (laughs) But Tony Berg, who has since had decades to reflect back (laughs) on this experience, which he has, his 10 days in Bearsville, Mm -hmm. his recording cabin in the woods. (laughs) He did say that he made rookie mistakes at that time being the band's producer, you know, something he learned and, you know, obviously went on to have a successful career. But back then he admits that he focused on Paul Westerberg a lot more than the other guys. He took for granted how much of a gang they were and only spent time with Paul. Like like you talked about when it came to pre-production, he didn't include Tommy Slim or Chris. And so Tony took that as a lesson. And then, of course, as we told in the story, I think we've told in the story, Matt Wallace took over uh, and they recorded it in L.A. And so it all worked out okay in the end. I mean, by 2014, it worked out. Yes, by 2014, it worked out great. Um, It's fantastic. 89 to 2014, that's all it took. That's why, can I give some sources? Give some sources. Some quick, okay, so Dead Man's Pop, uh, there's the box set, the liner notes. We found online, I found them online. It was very, I was actually pretty easy to find by Bob Mayer. I believe he won a Grammy for those liner notes. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty much a, an so excerpt good. from Trouble Boys. Yes, it's it, but it's fantastic. It's, yeah. got, it's actually a little, uh, it's got a little more like details in it. It's, it's really fun. It's the edited version. It's great. Right, it's it's great. And also, I checked out the Rhino podcast that had Bob Mayer and Jason Jones, the guys who curated the whole box set. They two interviewed Tony Berg and Matt Wallace. So it was like a, the four of them had a long conversation to you know promote this box set on the official Rhino podcast. So that was really, really interesting. We got a lot of really fun uh, details from that. And of course, as we've always said, Bob Mayer's uh, Trouble Boys is the authority on the story of the replacements. Definitely check that out. Absolutely. All right, everybody. That's it. That's no, it. No, I'm, this is so much fun. It's we so got to do this more often. We have to. We have oh, to. We'll how be about, back with how it. about every other week? Every other week we'll do it. All, all right. right. Okay. Bye, everybody. Listen to No Dogs in Space. All the rest of the episodes we got out there. We got so many different series for everybody who loves to hear about music out there. And if you want to contribute to a future episode of Extra Play, if you got a story that you think would be cool for us to talk about, a news story, anything like that, a personal story, uh, send us an email at nodogsinspace at gmail.com. 
Instagram.com and uh, we might talk about it. Absolutely. And definitely check out our Instagram, No Dogs Pod. Uh, I'm Carolina Danger Hidalgo. You're Marcus Parks. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got t-shirts for sale, lastpodcastmerch.com. And, you know, and, and, and that's about it. Like, if, if you want to check out, you know, if you're on the grid. That's right. You want to check out all that stuff out and get some updates and all, all that business and wear our t-shirts. That'd be fantastic. We love you guys. That'd be great. Thank y'all so much. Goodbye. Goodbye. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.